Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Yan Li, who's Associate Professor of History at Oakland University, and she'll be talking about her new book, China's Soviet Dream, Propaganda, Culture and Popular Imagination, which was published in 2018 by Routledge. China and Russia's rapprochement today, evident in everything from resource and defense deals to the apparent bonhomie of the relationship between Presidents Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, might appear to some to have come out of nowhere. Up until relatively recently, Beijing and Moscow treated each other with a degree of caution, even if pictures can be found online of Jiang Zemin hugging Boris Yeltsin during late 1990s border settlement meetings. However, as Yan Li's book, China's Soviet Dream, makes clear in lucid and captivating detail, today's at least superficially warm relationship has significant earlier precedents to draw on, particularly for a now somewhat older generation of PRC citizens. Once upon a time in the not-so-distant 1950s, everything from China's fashion to its literature, its architecture to its language, bore a deep Soviet imprint a cultural component to the alliance between the two countries which existed at the time. Yan Li argues that as well as transforming the lives of many, especially urban citizens of the young PRC, this massive influence brought to the country in printed literature and media, translated films and personally by thousands of Soviet experts, provided an entire framework for a vision of socialist modernity which China sought to pursue. It's for this reason that this decade of deep cultural contact has had a legacy which has lasted for long enough to be drawn on today. But to discuss more about this earlier form of Chinese dream and how she delved into it, I'll say Yan Li, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you on too, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this subject, which is uh, extremely close to my own heart, I have to say. Um, But Oh, thank you for having well, me. Uh, before we get into it, um, perhaps I'll start off by asking, as I usually do, what your background is and how you came to be interested in China's Soviet connections, this uh, truly fascinating period of history. Oh, sure. Um, I uh, I was born and raised in China um, before I came to the United States for my doctoral degree. I had a um, I had a major in English and then in uh, a master's in cultural studies, um, and then I and that explains why I was interested in in literature and the book actually has a uh, substantial part uh, in on literature. Um, but what actually drew me to this uh, project was um, my training in grad school. Um, I studied with, prof- with uh, uh, Professor C- Christina Gilmartin, um, l- a late historian, um, a, an expert in gender history of modern China. At that time, I was very interested in gender studies, um, but 
you know, due to different uh, uh, factors, I did not end up doing uh, my dissertation on, uh, on, on the gender history of, of, of China. But um, as as you can see, that the book still has um, has the, um, a lot of concern for women, for um, the uh, the gender equality um, that the introduction of Soviet culture had um, um, on, on, on China. Um, so, and then uh, during my uh, grad school, I took a seminar on Soviet cinema. And uh, during that class, I was watching a lot of so- Soviet movies, um, like uh, Cranes Are Flying. And I find that a lot of those Soviet era movies um, were very similar to the kind of uh, films that my parents um, and uh, some of the old relatives in my family like to, to watch. Um, and I learned that um, for for my parents' generation, a lot of them uh, watch. They still like Soviet movies, and um, when they were young, they learned Russian. They wore uh, Soviet-style clothing. Uh, they dreamed of studying in the Soviet Union. So I realized that the parallels between um, Soviet cinema and Chinese cinema were was not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, drove, um, drove me to think about it um, and to find the uh, the larger picture behind it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and another drive was also uh, was personal. Uh, I uh, when I was in uh, when I was in middle school, I fell in love with Russian literature. Um, I, I I and. You know, I, I remember I would read um, um, from well, I would borrow books from the library and and, uh, and read them day and night during summertime. And I tried to find out what was the thing that was resonating with me that really touched my soul so deeply. Um, and I, re- I I knew that um, the kind of environment that I was uh, growing up was very much different from the from my parents' generation. But you know, I was uh, I was still you know growing up in the shadow of Mao. Um, so I, I think there might be something um, something that um, even though it is not similar, but there, uh, even though it's not completely the same. But there is something that we share, um, and I really want to wanted to find out what this thing mm-hmm. was um, in Soviet culture um, that resonated with um, with the Chinese on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and this is why um, I started. Uh, my research and um, a, an important part of um, uh, the drive for this project was my desire to write a personalized form of uh, uh, of history um, in order to weave my own personal perception um, and the dreams and hopes of uh, you know some past generations into my research. Right. right. Um, yeah, hence the the name. Yeah, the Soviet uh, China Soviet yeah, dream. Yeah, well, I, and I think that personal engagement and and that motivation comes out really strongly, particularly in the latter part of the book, which, as you mentioned, has this strong focus on uh, on, on literature. Um, you you discuss the yeah the kind of uh, resonances and the deeper 
a common humanity which Chinese readers have found in Russian literature. I mean, I would say many readers across the world have found in Russian literature over the ages, but it's particularly significant on the background of this profound cultural engagement, which, um, as you mentioned, you you say you described, you, you know, you kind of discovered it somewhat by chance by re- noticing the commonalities between Soviet and, and, and Chinese film. Um, actually, a previous interview, which I would encourage listeners to look out for, is uh, Elizabeth Maguire's uh, uh, discussion about her book, also on a certain uh, era of China, Chinese Soviet residence, and she describes a similar kind of chance encounter with the uh, these kind of artistic commonalities. Um, but that's great. Anyway, we, now we have a sense of how the book kind of took shape. Perhaps we'll jump into yes, uh, yes, right, yeah, and uh, yeah, in this book also um, really was also shaped um, by um, some new trends in Sino-Soviet studies, uh, as uh, Elizabeth McGuire. Uh, research shows, um, and also um, there's Yu um, Minling uh, in Taiwan's work. Um, they, um, but yeah, and um, so so this th- this represents a uh, a new trend in Sino-Soviet studies, mm-hmm. which moves away from you know high politics, uh, cold word. Uh, geopolitics and uh, economic competition or ideology divergence, mm, mm. Um, but to really look at the personal, um, um, the everyday level of uh, Sino-Soviet encounter. Exactly, and I, I think that's um, why you're, it's such mm-hmm. a rich and valuable book. This is uh, it, it, it's amazing actually to have all of this stuff in one place because you do see some sort of. Yeah, snapshots of this uh, kind of commonality in the cultural sphere, this cultural engagement. But as you say, it's it's been very much on the periphery, uh, given the larger focus academically on questions of of high politics, of of Cold War, yeah, geopolitical concerns. So um, actually, you know, it's quite an amazing thing. I think in in this volume to have everything kind of brought brought together and, and discussed. Um, and so the book falls into three separate parts. Uh, a first in which you're discussing uh, the activities of some formal organizations such as the Sino-Soviet Friendship Association uh, and, and the effect on uh, language learning and, and education and so on. Um, the second part uh, where you treat uh, some questions which I think um, particularly intrigue me uh, uh, relating to urban landscape and architecture um, and the Soviet influence on Chinese cityscapes and then also how, f- how was transformed under Soviet influence. And then finally, um, the section on literature that we've already alluded to, um, in which you discuss um, how readers, Chinese readers, uh, read both Soviet literature and that was that was influenced by Soviet literature, Chinese literature influenced by Soviet literature, and then how that lit- literary influence kind of endured uh, beyond that 50s period. Um, but in the introduction where you kind of set all this up, you, um, yeah, zoom in as you say on this kind of cultural dimension so perhaps i could begin by asking you i mean in opposition to this focus on politics on high level uh, activity how do you understand culture in in this book and and in general indeed in your work yeah this is one of the key words of this book um I I define culture uh, very broadly. Um, in my study, um, to me, uh, culture include anything that helps shape uh, ideology, beliefs, uh, worldviews, uh, and even the lifestyles of the people. Um, like in Stalin's time, culture meant cultivation 
Um, it includes the effort to shape the mind through education, uh, literature, and arts, and and, and and other kind of learnings. Um, so I, 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 of course, this book is not uh, meant and cannot be uh, exhaustive of all the aspects of culture that I uh, broadly define here. Um, but I, I try to include um, some uh, aspects that I consider important to change people's perceptions um, and uh, to uh, transform, um, to help transform China uh, in the new directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why um, I... Um, in the in the first, as you as you outlined, the first um, part kind of sets the the stage um, it, for the entire book to discuss the propaganda, uh, to discuss the efforts of the the propaganda and the activities of uh, the propaganda work, um, and to tentatively uh, evaluate the kind of. Uh, um, the kind of effect on, on the people. Um, it was in the second part um, that I uh, delve into um, some um, um, concrete examples. Um, so I, in chapter three, talks about architecture, um, and chapter four talks about clothing, um, urban fashion. Um, so those are um, two examples um, that I give um to, well, key examples, of course, um, you know, with architecture and closing, um, there are many, many other things uh, uh, involved. Um, but uh, these are two key uh, aspects in the cityscape um, that was being transformed. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, so this, this probably... Um, this shows how I define culture um, in... in in um, using by by using uh, architecture uh, by using how urban uh, appearance was transformed, um, you know, through architecture and the change of fashion. You know, I, I talk about um, how the culture of China, mm-hmm. right, urban culture, uh, was uh, transformed, and how people's perception on um, people's worldview. Um, and their imagination about China's future were shaped. Right. right. Um, so, yeah, and yeah, you, you yeah have, this, uh, uh, this kind of um, mm-hmm. definition of culture or this understanding of culture, I think is it's, it's really interesting because you're taking seriously, in a sense, the efforts of the Soviet and then the Chinese authorities to transform people's lives in quite a sort of activist, interventionist way. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, this understanding of Stalinist understanding of culture. Um, I mean, clearly you're not you're not uh, adopting a Stalinist analytical lens, but you are at least understanding these concepts somewhat as they are uh, understood on the ground, rather than um, kind of entirely imposing from outside. Um, but in terms of how the culture and how the how the lives of people changed, I mean, to what extent can we assess at this point uh, how readily people adopted? these new influences from the Soviet Union at this time? And what are your sources for uh, evaluating uh, how much yeah, Chinese people did uh, change their lives uh, under the Soviet influence? 
Yeah, this is this is uh, the the central uh, puzzle of this book, um, and I I I I I, were, I was fully aware of the difficulty of uh, evaluating um, the effects of past effort. Um, the the book were um, is only meant to be an attempt to uh, to try to show. Um, some of the the effects, some of the um, the, the repercussions of uh, the Sino-Soviet engagement. Um, it what what I was trying to do um, was um, to look at not only just uh, not only the official accounts of um, the uh, evaluation of uh, friendship uh, activities. Um, you know, there's the Sino-Soviet Friendship Association that had uh, many, many branches at all different levels, um, and they did a lot of uh, activities, as I um, as I outlined in Chapter 1. Um, and, and they also gave reports. Um, so the um, they they have they they try to tell how you know their their work um, worked out. Right? So uh, and, and and this helps um, to to gain a glimpse uh, into the um, the on the on the ground effects of uh, the friendship activities and how uh, Soviet culture penetrated into the everyday mm-hmm. life of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I also look at um, you know, uh, publications from the 50s, um, newspapers, uh, journals, magazines, um, they, and they, there's a lot of um, um, sections in, in, in those uh, publications that um, talk about uh, people's, uh, people's uh, that, that talks about people's feelings um, in the, or include people's letters right, to the editorial. And so they touch upon um, how they responded to um, the Sino-Soviet uh, friendship uh, and the friendship activities. Mm-hmm. Um, that is another source, um, and uh, I also um, I also did oral interview. Um, so oral history is also an important part of um, the research for this book. Um, I. Um, um, I interviewed not only people in my family, but also um, people uh, in different cities uh, to try to find out um, you know, to what extent um, the friendship uh, activities were played out um, you know, in different localities um, and uh, how those activities and the introduction of Soviet culture affect uh, different affected differently uh, different uh, social strators mm. of, of, of society. Mm. Um, so yeah, our interview was uh, another part. Uh, even though um, I was fully aware of the limitations of doing oral history, um, in the, you know, by no means um, did I uh, try to claim that this is um, the the actual result or this is um, um, how all the population, mm. right, all the people of China felt about Sino-Soviet uh, friendship. Mm. 
um, and the friendship activities. Um, but I was trying um, to at least um, um, you know contribute to a an understanding of the extent of uh, the Sino-Soviet engagement right. and um, the extent to which uh, people uh, were willing to to change. Um, and uh, to follow this um, this kind of new trajectory, sure. um, and to modify their lives, um, their lifestyle, their worldview. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you bring and you bring plenty mm-hmm. of that sort of nuance out. I think we get a sense of the fact that it wasn't absolutely everybody in the country that was influenced by these these cultural changes, but but uh, nevertheless had a very significant impact uh, among those uh, members of the population that. Yeah, that did live in the cities, and that I guess ultimately were many of the uh, important figures uh, in, in in the decades that followed. So, um, uh, given that this was often something focused on on cities and on this kind of, um, I guess, some of the main loci of the geopolitical relationship. I mean, the the strategic uh, bond between China and the Soviet Union at this time uh, was one born out of very distinct and uh, kind of seemingly quite threatening uh, political circumstances. Um, so there were strong grounds for this kind of cultural, uh, this promotion of certain forms of Soviet culture within China. Um, so I just wonder, given that there were these imperatives underlying it, uh, is it possible to say that Soviet culture was almost the only culture that was available, the only foreign culture that was available to Chinese citizens at this time was all other Western, kind of what what was increasingly coming to be, you know, quote-unquote Western in this Cold War frame. Uh, was all of that culture excluded? Um, at what, what proportion of, of Soviet uh, or, or of Chinese citizens' cultural diet uh, was Soviet during this period? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, I, 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 you know, the uh, the perception that um, that uh, the Soviet culture was almost the only um, the only culture that China uh, embraced at that time uh, is a kind of impression that we get from uh, reading the literature of that time. Uh, especially, you know, uh, by reading the news, uh, like, uh, People's Daily uh, and other newspapers, other party organ newspapers. And that's the impression that we get um, because Soviet cultures, uh, anything related to the Soviet Union was elevated to the highest. Um, and um, there was very little mention of uh, other, uh, especially the Euro-American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, but but this doesn't mean that um, a Western culture completely faded. Uh, it was um, just that the official attitude towards it was hostile, um, but uh, it, the, in uh, in cities like Shanghai, um, um, there was still a degree of tolerance of Western culture. Um, you know, people could still uh, watch some, um, um, you know, more progressive themed uh, Western movies. Um, and uh, the study of English was, was uh, tolerated. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes there was even um, some um, uh, progressive uh, authors or um uh, cultural um, cultural uh, groups um, coming um, to 
um, to to visit China, mm-hmm. but they but this was very you know kept to, you know very low key. Um, but right, um, they. The, for for most Chinese, um, I, I think what uh, the Soviet culture was uh, what uh, what was readily available to them, um, because in the libraries uh, it's all about um, Russian literature, um, and if you go to the cinema, it's all uh, about uh, Soviet movies. Um, there's a lot of um, there was quite a lot of uh, so- Soviet movies that. Um, the Chinese really liked um, uh, Kuban Cossack was one of it. Um, um, you know, there's people really liked the kind of lighthearted um, entertainment, mm-hmm. um, and they um, they find something different in um, in the in the Soviet uh, culture. Right. right. Um, well, and, and a so, lot of this was to do with, I guess, the uh, activities as you outline in chapter one of the uh, the friendship uh, organization friendship association um which you point mm-hmm. out quite extraordinarily i hadn't appreciated this but you say that um within a few years of the uh, alliance it was the largest mass organization in china um so i guess this is another measure of the sheer dominance of um of, of sort of soviet cultural input into china um what were the kind of cultural activities you mentioned films there what were the kind of cultural activities that the friendship association uh, focused on oh they focus on so many things um uh, anything conceivable um you know they were trying to do it um they um publish a lot of lot of uh, books handbooks uh, handouts and uh, pamphlets about sino-soviet friendship um they promoted soviet literature um and they promoted uh, soviet style education uh, they uh, pushed the Russian learning programs. Um, there was a lot of radio programs that were sponsored by the Sino-Soviet Friendship Association um, to teach um, people Russian on the radio. Um, they also organized a lot of celebra- celebratory uh, activities uh, whenever there is a Rush- uh, Soviet festival um, or something to do with um, the uh, Sino-Soviet alliance. Um, you know, they would organize um, celebrations, um, marches and um uh, cultural performances, um, and um, they they have yeah they have just all kinds of things. Um, and uh, yeah, they they try to use the form the cultural forms um, that the people liked um, to like like Arenjuan um, and uh, Xiangsheng, you know those kind of forms that are very familiar to the people uh, to try to um, you know uh, gain people's interest. Um, and in this kind of uh, immersion, right, the idea of Sino-Soviet alliance uh, penetrated into you know the the, the minds of the people. So they have this kind of strategic uh, approach, as you say, that piggybacks on yeah popular cultural forms. But was that always welcomed? Was it always very warmly received, or was there any resistance uh, to this kind of flood of Soviet influence? 
Right. There was resistance. Yeah. Um, not all people uh, like this kind of things uh, because it was, uh, you know, it had a political purpose um, and, um, it, it, you know, to to infiltrate into people's personal life, uh, political contents. Um, you know, this is this is something that um, some people frown upon. But um um, but most people saw this as a uh, as a you know a, a welcoming uh, thing, and um, they liked the the cultural forms, and they it, it was a form of entertainment. Right. And in nineteen fifties China, uh, when um, mass entertainment was uh, relatively uh, limited, uh, the kind of um, activities and the performances that the uh, friendship organization um, put up really helped people uh, you know to um, to to deal with their time and to and uh, so in and it's um, um, the um, um, I was trying to think about. I just, just there, there was a, a thought that just flew off my mind. Um, <laughs> don't worry, don't but worry. Uh, I guess you can edit yeah, yeah. this yeah, part out. This part out. Um, so yeah, my next question, yeah. my next question would be about the. Uh, well, you mentioned this kind of um, cultural aspect and the kind of more, yeah, I guess, light-hearted entertainment side of things, mm-hmm. but of course. Also, China was somewhere that had been, yeah, very much in turmoil and political and social fragmentation for a long time. So there was an awful lot of practical construction to do, I guess. And this is, I think, where your argument about China's choice of a a vision of socialist modernity comes into the picture. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, as important as anything in this in this overall construction of a new framework for a new state is education and and kind of starting from the bottom up. So what was the educational reform program that was instituted, um, both uh, kind of, I guess, in content in terms of teaching of Russian, which you've already mentioned, but also the actual practical uh, structural changes that were made? Yeah, um, well, the Chinese um, uh, borrowed um, the Soviet curriculum um, from elementary school to to college, um, and, and um, they tried to copy the Soviet Union in every aspect. Um, they even tried to copy the you know, the schedule, the, cla- the 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 school schedule um, that was used in the Soviet Union, uh, which um, you know turned out to be devastating to the Chinese students, um, and eventually they had to call off, uh, call that off. Um, but the most striking aspect of the education reconstruction was in college. Uh, universities were reorganized uh, along Soviet lines. Um, this um, this meant that um, uh, comprehensive universities were uh, broken down into more specialized uh, colleges and universities as to produce um, you know experts in certain fields, uh, especially in the fields that China really needed um, you know the talents. Mm-hmm. Um, so this gave uh, birth to a lot of specialized uh, colleges um, in China. So, you know, many of them are still uh, are still running uh, until today. Mm. 
um, you know, it's uh, it, it is really um, you know it really cast a long shadow on the Chinese education and the the effect, whether positive or ne- or negative, are, are still um, you know unsettled. It's still, you, know, you can still sense them. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely know. noticed right. studying both in Russia and China. Yeah, I think the kind of embodied similarities, if you like, of sitting in classrooms and there being a certain mode of education, <laughs> there being a certain you know bearing, I guess, that students are expected to have and the teachers have. Um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to, you know, kind of, I guess, over egg the similarities that I personally have, have deduced from that. But certainly, um, yeah, you yeah. can still trace that 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 shadow as you say that kind of long afterlife of some of these structural um uh, structural imprints left during this time um another aspect of the kind of structural mm -hmm. side or the educational side um or yeah the, the the side focused on um building a mechanism for education uh which i was really fascinated by was something you cover in chapter two namely the influence of russian language um and how, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, Russian actually uh, cast some uh, influence on Chinese in terms of some structures. I hadn't realized that phrases like shang and shang were kind of calcs mm-hmm. from Russian expressions, vasnov norm or, or these other kind of, uh, I mm-hmm. guess, fa- almost phatic uh, utterances that one makes in Russian. Um, that was really fascinating to learn. But the other intriguing thing you mentioned is the Russian role in Chinese script reform, and especially... Um, the development of a phonetic rendering of Chinese, uh, which obviously ultimately became Pinyin. Could you say something more about mm-hmm. what, 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 how this played out? I mean, what was the Russian role and uh, kind of Soviet influence on uh, script reform? Yes, um, yeah, the Soviet influence really played a big role on, on China's uh, script reform. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party had always had this uh, dream of um, um, promoting uh, mass education um, and uh, increasing literacy was always the hope. Um, and to achieve that goal, um, one uh, proposal was to reform the Chinese, the very difficult Chinese script. Uh, supposedly, um, you know, the Chinese script is it's so hard to learn. Um, and uh, um, in, in, in this this effort actually uh, went back to the Republican time, or, or even uh, at, uh, at the the end of the nineteenth century, the beginning of the twentieth century. Um, intellectual scholars um, really wanted to uh, change um, the Chinese script um, into a kind of fanatic script uh, because of their um, uh, their education in the West. Um, you know, they um, got to learn Western languages, and they realized um, the how difficult the the you know the ideographic and uh, um, the pictographic Chinese script words. Um, so this um, then the so the Chinese already the Chinese intellectuals already uh, were uh, exploring ways of uh, rendering um, the Chinese uh, script in uh, in a, a kind of new alphabet. Um, but in the 1930s, um, in, in the late 20s and 1930s, um, in the Soviet Union, 
um, there was also um, an effort to help the Chinese, um, the Chinese who were, um, you know, there was a, um, you know, some some uh, 10,000 Chinese uh, workers in um, in the Soviet Far East. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Soviet government was trying to uh, help them um, increase their literacy. And the F, one of the, the efforts was to, uh, to try to um, provide a kind of phonetic um, annotation uh, to the Chinese script so that um, they can, you know, with this aid, um, they can read the Chinese very easily. Mm. Um, so this was the beginning of the Soviet involvement in the Chinese script uh, reform, um, and but but so so this kind of uh, uh, ref- the script was um, um, named uh, in, uh, Latinized um, uh, Chinese alphabet was actually introduced um, back into China in the 30s and was actually used uh, quite extensively. Right. So even before uh, the however, PRC era. Right, right. Yeah, but then due to the um, the war with Japan and then uh, the Civil War, um, this project um, was uh, was halted. Um, and so in the in the PRC era, um, the Communist uh, Party uh, renewed this interest um, and then in this effort. Um, and they and of course this was a time of Sino-Soviet alliance. A lot of Soviet experts. Um, uh, were invited into China. Um, some of the Soviet linguists also were invited to help China to give advice to the Chinese uh, script reform. Mm. Um, so um, there uh, was uh, even attempt to try to write um, to 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 spell Chinese in Cyrillic. Mm. Uh, because you know this argument, it's you know it's it, there's a convenient argument for that. You know, so now um, we are friends, so we should share the same uh, script mm. so that the people can uh, talk to each other more easily. Um, and uh, you know, this was a time when uh, the world revolution was still uh, relevant um, in uh, an ultimate goal. Right? So there was argument that once well, revolution was one, then uh, we can all use the same um, script, speak the same language. Right? Um, however, um, I, in, in, in this chapter, uh, I also argue that uh, in considering this new uh, script, um, this new uh, fanatic script, the Chinese um, party had their own thoughts um, and they showed more prudence um, and uh, reservation towards um, the usage of uh, Russian Cyrillic. Right. Um, they had their eye on the bigger pie, um, and, um, and 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 also, uh, you know, quite interestingly, as they were considering um, which uh, which uh, which uh, alphabet to choose um, between. Um, and they were, they were, um, you know, Sino-Soviet split started to surface. Right? So it was, um, 
it put a quite a convenient stop uh, to the Chinese effort um, to go right, on right. Uh, exploring right uh, the possibility of using Cyrillic. Sure. Although you um, mentioned that actually right. even uh, up to quite late in this uh, phoneticization process, um, curiously, this this Russian chair, the uh, letter that's written mm-hmm. in. in, in Latin script as CH, I guess, although uh, in, in Pinyin it's the J. Or right. what, what, could you? There was this kind of yeah remnant Cyrillic letter which nearly made. It yeah, into there Pinyin. was. Yeah, the the the, the uh, I if I remember it correctly, is the Chinese letter uh, for uh, t, um, for um, well later it was as rendered Q. in 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 the Latin as right, Q. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. So they, yeah, they just couldn't, they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they, because the Chinese and the Russian pronunciation uh, are so similar that they just, um, you know, couldn't abandon this Cyrillic letter. Yeah. Um, and they thought that the best way was to use the Cyrillic to render that sound. Yeah. yeah. I think um, there's, there's something so, kind of almost yeah, symbolic is, there about these, these Soviet traces, right. you know, these little, little things that kind of, you know, carry on almost unnoticed, these homeopathic remnants. Uh, exactly. You know. Yeah, this is very intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but... but um yeah, but eventually they decided to abandon that letter um, and just use you um, use Latin, the Latin right, letter. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, and then yeah. We move on and, to the. And, yeah, sorry, that, carry on. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Go on. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll do a bit of a mm-hmm. there too. So then you move on mm-hmm. to the kind of uh, yeah physical, I guess, uh, material side of this modern experiment this new uh, advance into modernity if you like um with uh, mm-hmm. the urban landscapes and, and and the fashions um so how was it that urban reform and, and that that uh, buildings themselves were seen to be material manifestations of this this new age and um this new uh, engagement with the soviet union um in particular i'm interested in i guess this uh, classic i guess socialist art art uh, concern the idea mm-hmm. of things being socialist in content and national in form and how did uh, chinese buildings try to follow these instructions and, and what did that sort of symbolize yeah uh, well i in in this chapter i, I talk about a, a kind of a, a soviet style architecture um in you know in the in the chinese terminology um, well, this this is not exactly um, exactly Soviet um, per se, but it is how the Chinese perceive uh, Soviet architecture to be. Um, basically, this is a kind of symmetric um, format. Um, in the, you know, it it, it, it has a, um, a high rise in the top. Um, and the this kind of architecture, this kind of design, was uh, was seen, uh, was was used in uh, in the Chinese in major Chinese cities, uh, and, and this was uh, perceived to be representing, um, you know, the advanced Soviet culture, um, the kind of uh, the Sino-Soviet friendship. Uh, and a kind of uh, you know a, a new socialist look, mm. um, and it, it it is very important to to bear in mind that uh, in China at that time in the nineteen fifties uh, had very very few high rises. 
So any kind of Soviet, uh, you know, this type of Soviet style arcade uh, buildings were um, wherever it erected, uh, it really caught um, sight um, it, it, of the people. Mm, mm. Um, it, it really represented the most uh, modern uh, and uh, advanced technology and uh, facility. Um, so, and, and it also was a manifestation of um, the material uh, well-being, uh, the m- material achievement of uh, socialist China. Right. And you say, yeah, um, you so, describe a lot about how this mm-hmm. was happening on a background of uh, very uh, exaggerated depictions of Soviet life and how uh, rich and, and, and prosperous even the most average Soviet citizen was. And and, and I guess, yeah, this uh, material reflection of this kind of reinforced that impression in people's minds. Um, one uh, mm-hmm. particular building, one particular institution that you describe uh, in really captivating detail, I have to say, um, is the, the Moscow restaurant uh, in Beijing. Yes. Um, could you say mm-hmm. a little more about what kind of a place that was? Yeah, this was um, a part of the um, that multi-purpose uh, structure um, that was built in Beijing in 1954, uh, known as the uh, the Soviet Ex- Exhibition Center. Um, so the whole center exhibition center uh, is divided into several parts, and this Moscow restaurant well, was part of it. It is the the restaurant. Right? Supposedly, uh, people can uh, go and see an exhibition from the Soviet Union in the exhibition hall. Um, they and then they can go to the theater uh, to watch a, a, a play or uh, to. There's also a a cinema, uh, a movie theater, mm. um, you know, where people can watch a Soviet movie, and then um, after all of these activities, then they can uh, dine in Soviet style uh, at this Moscow restaurant. Right. Um, right. So it, it, yeah, it is very, very ornately decorated uh, in the quintessential neoclassical um, style mm. uh, from the from from you know from Soviet Russia. Mm. Um, and it, it was such a, 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 a kind of a hit in, in China at that time that, um, you know, people, uh, longed so much, um, for going to, to eat in this restaurant, um, but it was very expensive, um, and not, not, you know, in, in the beginning without, um, the, uh, the, the ticket, um, mm. you, you, you're not allowed um, right. to, to go and dine there. Right. Um, but later, yeah, as people could pay in cash, uh, people would save money to go, to go there, um, and, uh, to eat, uh, the food of the Soviet big brother. <laughs> and to, and, and, and this is, and I, I make a, po- a point here, um, that, um, uh, for a lot of Chinese, eating Russian food uh, meant um, at that time uh, eating Western food. Right. It, it is. It is. It is a kind of you know. You, when you're eating in the Moscow restaurant, you're eating Sichuan Western food, even though it is uh, essentially Russian food. Right. But you're using fork and knife. You're um, um, you have to you know gingerly play with the Western uh, dining etiquette. 
Um, so for 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 people at that time, this was really really an an an, an exotic uh, experience. Yeah, I think that's really and, key and, and and a really incisive point you make uh, throughout the book actually about how Chinese experience of these Soviet and and Russian artifacts were was was their engagement with the outside world. You know, this was uh, a taste of something beyond just specifically soviet or russian uh yeah cuisine or architecture but it was actually um uh, something much something bigger foreign yeah, yeah something exactly. foreign something yeah um something uh modern right um, and this seems to a... play out in the realm of fashion as well which is the subjects of the next chapter um mm-hmm. especially this kind of exoticism um you mentioned for example this bulaji the the russian style yes. um dress or at least what was assumed to be a russian or soviet style dress but you point out i think very perceptively that there was nothing especially so right. about this dress it was kind of just a western european style dress but it was because mm-hmm. it came like so many other things through the soviet union it was sort of understood to be a particularly soviet thing um this was a clearly a, a woman's fashion item could you say something uh, about this kind of gender dimension to, to fashion uh, as it was influenced by Soviet style. Um, you mentioned right at the beginning that this was one of your very early academic interests. So I'd be interested to hear more about, about this. Yes, yeah. This chapter does have a focus um, or at least a, a concern for, um, for, 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 the, for the gender aspect of Sino-Soviet engagement. Um, yeah, I focused on women's fashion in particular um, to look at how um, this uh, Soviet input helped um, really uh, bring in new styles to women's uh, clothing. Um, and, uh, and, and, and in, in turn, that really helped women uh, to, um, to display them um, and uh, to embrace um, the, the new uh, and also to uh, experiment um, with new forms of fashion. Hmm. Um, so it was really a, 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 a liberating force um, to not only just women, but overall to the Chinese society. And this also coincided with um, the, the mid-1950 uh, uh, boom of, um, uh, well, maybe not, not exactly boom, but at least the, the economy was recovering. It was on the better side. Um, and uh, people were generally happier than before, and materialistically, you know, they were better off. Um, so all of this um, helped, um, you know, in, in, and also with the introduction of the Soviet style that was very um, lively and colorful and cheerful, uh, it really helped uh, to bring out a kind of um, um, a, a new perception, mm. um, a kind of... Um, a new uh, trend in the urban setting um, that things are on the on on the better side. Things are up um, are going well. And did this um, play a role in terms of shifting relative roles between men and women in this era in China? I mean, certainly uh, an awful lot in yes. all levels of society was undergoing incredible transformation. So, how did sort of fashion interact with this? Uh, reconfiguration, if you like, of, of social relations. Yeah, it's pretty that. interesting. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that um, this fashion mostly affected uh, women. 
where whereas men uh, were still uh, restricted to um, the 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 standard Zhongshanzhuang uh, or the Mao suit. Mm. Mm. Um, so you know, it 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 seems that um, um, it was uh, um, you know that um, men were. Um, well, the, there in, in in terms of the um, m- uh, men's fashion, um, the, it was uh, actually in fact uh, affected by the introduction of this um, the so called uh, big Soviet class. Uh, it, it's a kind of cotton that was introduced into China, mm. um, and um, um, both men and women were encouraged to wear this this kind of very colorful. Um, patterned um, uh, co- uh, cotton, and so you know, but men were um, men were more uh, reserved to um, to this kind of new class. Um, right, right. But there were, but uh, in the. Um, but in, in but it, you know in order to promote this kind of uh, class um you know in the name of uh, promoting sino-soviet cultural uh, exchange and cooperation um you know men who were um, who rejected wearing the the soviet big class uh, were criticized for their feudalistic uh, ideas and right. um, you know, for um you know not um, uh, going up um, uh, with the tide of right. the time although um, although this also draws attention to another dimension which we've already touched on this urban rural kind of uh, component you mentioned one i think quite funny uh, account that uh, you you heard of a man who uh, had gone back to his village uh, from the city wearing one of these quite loud and garish <laughs> uh, colorful soviet style tops and uh, had been kind of i don't know laughed out, yes. of, out of his village and 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 told to uh, you know not to wear such ludicrous clothes um in, so i i guess also as well as as well as gender differentials there's also um a kind of yeah re- light is shared by this new influence on uh, urban rural divides at the time um but moving forward into the final part of the book um which deals with uh, with the subjects of literature that we've already uh, mentioned mm-hmm. um this kind of reconfiguration of society at large and uh, the kind of incredible social upheaval that was that was going on uh, did have I guess a strong literary element in some senses because as you point out there were so many amazing uh, role models that that uh, Chinese readers were supposed to be finding in the Soviet literature that was being introduced um, and all kinds mm-hmm. of moral messages that were central to socialist era Russian language literature that was translated into Chinese um, so what were the kind of messages that the Chinese authorities were keen to promote via the means of Soviet literature? Um, and how did Chinese readers respond to this uh, kind of uh, more cultural aversion, I guess, of the, of the, of the, mm-hmm. the dy- uh, dynamic? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, the, the last part, these two chapters on Soviet literature, on um, are indeed trying to um, to to find out the divergence between these two, between the official interpretation of uh, certain Soviet uh, literature uh, and the, um, um, the 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 personal um, reception um, of of the the readers. 
um, the officially um, the Chinese government uh, wanted to use um, the Soviet literature and especially the uh, the Stalin the Soviet literature in Stalin's time, uh, which was um, uh, mostly um, the socialist realist literature, uh, as um, you know the models for not only Chinese the modern transformation of the Chinese literature, um, but also to educate the people uh, in socialist uh, values and uh, ideals, and you know as we know um, those. The, the kind of socialist, the realist models, um, the winner of Stalin Prize, um, were um, basically uh, following the party line. They were trying to show um, the model workers, um, the uh, you know those uh, exemplary heroes uh, in the Soviet Union in time of wars and construction, and how they devoted themselves to um, to the cause of the country. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this was the kind of message that the Chinese government uh, wanted the the people to get mm-hmm. through um, the introduction of uh, Soviet literature. Uh, however, um, you know, so so this um, I I'm not trying to say that this message was not got by the people. Indeed, um, people uh, resonated with this aspect of uh, Soviet literature. Um, they find you know the stories of Soviet heroes and the model workers to be uh, exhilarating and elevating, and they indeed model themselves upon those um, Soviet role models. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, I um, this is what I uh, try to emphasize in these two chapters: that um, personally, on the personal level, people uh, people got different things, um, things that are very different uh, from those uh, official interpretations. Mm. Um, they had um, their own. Um, their own feelings about the um, the Soviet literature, um, and they liked um, the aspects that were far different um, from what the the uh, the cultural authorities uh, emphasized. Right. And, and be, this is because um, Soviet literature, despite its um, uh, emphasis on um, uh, socialist realism, uh, despite being uh, didactic and doctrinaire, doctrinary, um, it is still, um, you know, is um, uh, it, it, it still has a lot of humanistic concerns, um, and uh, it still. Um, touches upon the issues of um, of life, um, of uh, uh, intimacy, love, and intimacy, and the personal, um, you know, the personal aspirations, personal um, aspects of human life, and right. this is something that really resonated with the Chinese readers at the time, um, whose own literature uh, in China. Um, really shied away from such topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so for them, you know, the Soviet, uh, the, uh, reading Soviet, uh, reading a Soviet novel, 
um, give them a chance to uh, enjoy such things without, mm. you know, making a political mistake, without being <laughs> criticized for their, right. you know, petty bourgeois sentiment, um, yeah. Yeah. being, um, you know, so um, so um, enthralled um, by such kind of trivial things. You know? Right. And so, I think you're drawing attention to this. Yeah, it kind of provides a really good encapsulation of the overall dynamics there both the kind mm-hmm. of thrill of something exotic and different that soviet culture brought to uh, the chinese audience and also yeah the extent to which all kinds of unintended things were sort of smuggled in um and and in a way as a result of yes. that i guess lodged themselves even more deeply in the cultural world um of chinese citizens which in turn explains uh in some ways, what you deal with in the final chapter of the book that I think we won't quite have time to delve into, um, uh, namely that lots of these deep impressions of Soviet literature and culture endured even well beyond the period that China and the Soviet Union were no longer friends. Um, But I would encourage listeners to pick up a copy of the book and uh, read that and indeed the entire book because there's an awful lot that we didn't get into um, that I think is extremely interesting and Mm -hmm. worth knowing um so yen uh it just remains for me to thank you very much uh for appearing today um but also uh before we go i'll ask you our traditional final question namely uh what is it that you have currently that you're working on what new projects have followed on from this uh, wonderful book Yes, uh, exactly. This is what I'm doing. Um, and this, uh, I'm looking at um, the internal publications um, that emerged in the uh, early 1960s. Um, and this was um, something that I actually talk about uh, in in chapter in the last chapter of this book. Um, and this was, um, you know, when 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 Soviet literature completely were uh, was completely eradicated um, after the Sino-Soviet split, um, the Chinese government still felt, um, you know, that the Soviet, um, you know, it, it just couldn't get out of the shadow of the Soviet Union. So, um, you know, in our, uh, it, it still felt that um, uh, necessary to uh, introduce uh, certain uh, types of uh, literature from the Soviet Union as to educate um, the Chinese people. Mm-hmm. But this was with controlled means. Um, by publishing uh, those uh, new novels in uh, through internal publication and circulation to a very limited uh, number of people of high-ranking officials and intellectuals, uh, supposedly those people are uh, immune right from uh, the, uh, the 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 kind of lethal effects of, of this poison. Right. Um, so yeah. yeah, I I yeah in uh, in the last chapter. Chapter, I, I talk about um, how this this uh, internal some of these internal publications um, that uh, uh, that that went into um, the uh, society uh, was read um, by were read by the red guards um, by the disillusioned cultural revolution generation and how um, these publications actually helped the Chinese to find a way out. Um, you know, to rethink a lot of problems uh, existent in China that were actually similar to uh, 
um, those in the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, so yeah, the 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 the, the spin off of this is that um, you know I'm working um, on this new project um, to try to look at um, the history of the internal publication. I'll delve more into um, the uh, the beginning of uh, or the origins of the internal publication as a result of the Cold War confrontation uh, and particularly the uh, the 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 Sino-Soviet split um, and, and how it um, um, how this, those publications uh, functioned in the Cultural Revolution and um, following that um, how they uh, you know those those inter- internal publications uh, became uh, publicly published after the Cultural Revolution right, um, so right. yeah and so in the early reform era, they really played a big role in enlightening the Chinese people. Um, it re- they really helped um, to push the intellectual ferment um, of the 80s. Right. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, what I'm working on now um, to well, try great. to see. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that really provides the bridge that is uh, so useful between this period of the 1950s that the book deals with and uh, a continuing degree of sentimental yes. or uh, indeed uh, cultural and, and now even political attachment between uh, China and, and Russia, the former Soviet Union. So uh, that sounds fantastic. And I think uh, look forward a lot to reading the output of that. Uh, but Yen, uh, thank you so much for being mm-hmm. on the podcast today. Um, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Uh, And listeners, thank you too for listening. If you've got this far to New Books in East Asian Studies, it's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.